Amen. Well, I was asked uh, by Andy to finish up our sermon series on doubts, dilemmas, and disagreements here this morning. So I was really excited about that, especially to be given this topic, um, the topic of how do Christians disagree with the world. Um, If you don't know, my uh, title here is Pastor of Engaging the World. So this is a particularly uh, interesting topic to me. Um, But one of the things I wanted to mention right up first, too, is that my attitude or my approach, I should say, coming to this is that I'm not coming as the expert on this topic I'm really coming as a fellow pilgrim here exploring and learning, and I see myself as a chief learner in this whole journey, in this whole area of engaging the world. Um, So I hope that you don't mind that we're walking this path together. I'm not not a mile down the road ahead of you. I'm right beside you, maybe hopefully a step ahead. I'm not sure sometimes, Um, but it's a journey that we're taking together, and we're going to explore a little bit what that looks like more this morning on this topic. Um, Our text is from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 through 17, invites you to turn there or read it with me silently as I read it out loud. This is God's word. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we look at this topic here, as we dive in here, I want to spend uh, most of my time on the second half really talking about the how, how to do that, how we're supposed to do this. But on the front end, it was really important to look at some biblical principles that I think are very relevant in this topic that we have to establish because the scriptures establish them for us that are super important. The first one is this. As followers of Jesus, we got to remember that we are fundamentally in opposition to the world. As followers of Jesus, we are fundamentally in opposition to the world. Um, Jesus says in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Then also in the book of James chapter 4, James writes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So one of the key things for us to see right at the very beginning here is that we are not friends with the world. And if you haven't noticed, the world is not interested in being a friend of the followers of Jesus Christ. This should not surprise us um, whatsoever. And by the way, it should not surprise us when the world acts worldly. I've heard people say sometimes, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It has been going to hell in a handbasket since the Garden of Eden, and it will continue to. The only thing that's unique is our awareness, tuning into that, tuning out of that sometimes, that should be what surprises us because it didn't surprise Jesus when he came and he saw the brokenness and he saw what sin had done. Um, And he had compassion on that. We should confidently, by the way, stand on God's word and the truth. We don't need to be afraid of that. We don't need to hide or shrink away from that. But we must remind ourselves that the world is blinded. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
they are blinded, just like we were once blinded before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Until their eyes are opened by the mercy and grace of God in the gospel as preached and proclaimed by the followers of Jesus, that's our responsibility, right? Nothing is going to change until God works through his regenerating power of his Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of those in the world. I remember when I was a student at Auburn University, I, I, one of my classes I had to take was a philosophy class as I was minoring in philosophy. And, um, and people told me ahead of time, and said, hey, if you wanna get that ethics, ethics class with such and such professor, you gotta make sure you sign up quickly because everybody wants to be in that class. And I said, a philosophy class on ethics? Everybody wants to be in? Oh, that professor, he's amazing. And truly the first day when I got to class, I came up, there was a line outside the door. Um, the line outside the door was for those, anybody that did not show up the first day for the class, he would presume was dropping it and he would let those people come in. So that's, that's what it was like. None of my other classes at Auburn had that experience. And I realized quickly after we got in there, um, I don't think this man had any faith uh, in Jesus Christ whatsoever, but what he did a beautiful job of is looking at issues like pro-life, pro-choice, the abortion issue. And he talked through it very, very logically. And he helped both sides see, well, hey, if somebody has this presupposition, it logically follows that this is what they would think, and therefore this would be their actions and so on. Um, and people loved it. They were soaking it up. They were eating it like crazy. But you know what? To my knowledge, it didn't change anybody's mind from whatever position they already had when they came in in the first place. As logical as it was, as delightful as it was, as actually the presentation, the one on pro-life, I particularly remember, was powerful and I thought, man, this guy's making a great, better case than I've heard many others who are Christians. Um, it did not have the power to change people's awareness or give them uh, sight from their, their spiritual blindness. And we have to be aware of that, that the power that, that, where that comes from is from God himself through his Holy Spirit. Um, your ability to write the most pristine, pristine social media post is not gonna change somebody's heart and life as much as I see people trying, it seems like, to do that through means like that. It's only God working powerfully in the hearts of people. However, it doesn't mean, by the way, um, this whole idea of opposition with the world does not mean that we don't have common ground that we can stand on at times. Um, even a broken clock, right, at least twice a day is correct. Um, in light of God's common grace, he's illuminated much to the world that we can embrace together. And we shouldn't shy away from those opportunities. Things like uh, opposition to sex trafficking, injustice, greed, genocide, deception. When there is room and there's places for us to stand side by side the world on these topics, we don't need to shy away from the idea that, well, we might be considered like them. Um, no, those are places and opportunities where God's common grace is, uh, is illuminating them that they are becoming actually like, more like God in those moments. And we should embrace those. So whether it's side by side with a Muslim working on tornado recovery in our area, um, that we shouldn't be afraid of that. We should gladly join in those opportunities um, where God's common grace is shining so brightly. Um, and the church should be right there with that. At the same time, not compromising uh, to do the work that God has called us to do in speaking the truth and being salt and light, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in a second. The scriptures, by the way, go on to tell us that we should not, with, we should not withdraw from the world, but we shouldn't take a position of judging the world either at the same time. First uh, Corinthians 5 says this, the Apostle Paul is writing about church discipline and notice what he says kind of indirectly in talking about our relationship to the world. He says this, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, 
or the greedy swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. In the teaching here of this, we see very clearly here that God is telling us that our position as the church of followers of Christ is not to judge those outside the church. God is up to that challenge, and he's going to do just fine with it. <clears throat> our attention to calling people out um, is primarily to happen to people inside the church, to keep the peace and purity of the church. Um, but he made it very clear that we are not to remove ourselves from the world. We've got to stay in the game. And why is that? Because we must stay in the game to be a contrast which is why we read the text from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be the light of the world. What does salt do? Salt preserves things from decay. Salt seasons things for vitality and life. The church has a strong role and responsibility to be doing that wherever believers are. Why light? Because light repels darkness. Because light guides people to safety and exposes the dangers that are out there. We have a responsibility to be doing that. So really the question I want to address for the rest of our time is how? How are we to do that? And how is that to be portrayed? So three things I want you to think about. One is posture, two is perspective, and three is process. And let's look at posture first. The scriptures tell us, posture-wise, that we were once enemies of God. We identified with the world, and we were in opposition to God before we came to saving faith in Christ. Look at Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When you realize and are aware that you were once an enemy of God and now have been made a friend of God by the saving work of Jesus Christ, it addresses and it changes your posture. Also, we're told God has lavished his grace on us through Christ. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. We're also told we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're made sons and daughters. Look at Galatians 4. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then also an heir. You see, the gospel creates in us a posture of humility, a posture of gratitude, a posture of joy, and a posture of rest. Rest from our works, knowing that Jesus Christ has done it all for us. One of my favorite Broadway musicals, uh, uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, um, the character Jean Valjean, if you know it or have seen it or have read the book or heard the story, receives mercy and grace from the bishop, right? Um, he gets out on probation and he stays with the bishop who's opened up his home and then he steals from the bishop and gets caught and brought back by the police, assuredly, who knew that he had, done, he had uh, stolen everything. And the bishop says, oh, you forgot these two silver candlesticks. And he gives them to him. And it changes the game because now he's become a recipient of mercy and grace in a way that he has never tasted before, never seen before. And it changes his posture. Even in the song he sings after that, he says, I'll escape now from this world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. Friends, that is our story 
of becoming recipients of the mercy and grace of God if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And another story must begin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. The new has come. And as recipients of God's mercy and grace, we must begin to live as the salt and light and having a posture of humility, gratitude, joy, and rest. But let me also warn us, there are counterfeit postures. And the world sees this all the time. The world sniffs these counterfeit postures out from the followers of Christ all too often. All too often in me, if I'm honest. One could be the feeling or portraying a superior or a holier-than-thou attitude. Sometimes that's sniffed out. Or a feeling of portraying impatience and contempt for those who don't follow Jesus. Rather than remembering that we were once enemies of God also. Or maybe it's a feeling of a lack of awe of how deep and how great God's mercy and grace has been towards us. Paul David Tripp writing about losing, the dangers of losing the awe of God. He's actually writing to pastors, but I wanna encourage you to hear it also as the church. He says this, he says, for sinners, the road between awe and complaining is very short. You and I were created to live our lives in the shadow of awe. Every word we speak, every action we take, every decision we make, and every desire we entertain was meant to be colored by awe, the awe of God. We were meant to live and minister with eyes gazing upward and outward. We were meant to live with hearts that are searching, hungry, seeking satisfaction, and being satisfied. Listen to what he says. Bad things happen when pastors lose their sense of awe. And I would add in church members. Bad things happen in ministry when we have no wonder inside of us. Bad things happen in local church leadership when we are no longer amazed. Bad things happen when we look around and nothing impresses us anymore. The things of God, the mercy and the graciousness, the holiness of God, the love of God, affects and changes our posture by definition. Because once of those of us who are dead have been made alive, as we read that scripture earlier in our service. Posture must be repeatedly practiced to become our nature, which is why we need to worship every week, which is why we need to be in community groups and journey groups, which is why we need connection with each other, is that we have to remind ourselves. We have to be practicing posture. Let me give you a couple practical suggestions. Uh, feed your posture truth to digest on a regular basis. Take time to reflect on how God has and is still displaying his mercy and grace. Tell stories around the kitchen table as a family or when you're together with friends or when you are chatting socially online or doing things like that of God's mercy and grace. Be reminded, ask to hear other stories. Stay and keep the wonder in your all going. Um, it's not something we have to stir up. It's something we have to remind ourselves because God's awesomeness never fades. It's just our distractions come in and take the place sometimes. Maybe participate in these Mitchell Road spiritual retreats, the one starting this weekend. Take a block out four hours of your day, five hours of your day to sit and be with the Lord. That could be a powerful way. Well, as we feed our posture, it will also give us clarity of perspective. That's number two, perspective. First thing I wanna say about perspective is that we as followers of Jesus, we have been made alive in Christ not primarily to save us from sin by itself, but to save us from sin so we can reflect Christ here on earth to a lost and dying world that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 
uh, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, we have been made alive to reflect the image of Christ. We've also been made alive to live and to continue the mission that he began 2,000 years ago, to make disciples. John 14, one of the last things Jesus will say. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. And then Jesus' very last words, which you're probably familiar with, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The gospel creates in us a perspective on the importance of living on mission and connecting with those who need the gospel. It creates in us a perspective of the importance to live on mission and connect with those who need the gospel. Just this past week, I was talking to a, a former missionary who has been back um, from a third world country for several years now in the States, and he was talking about his biggest struggle. You know, his biggest struggle is being back from the mission field. He said it was falling into the distractedness and the busyness of productivity that this country thrives on. He said it was so much easier being in a country with those distractions, and those busyness weren't there, at least like not, not like it's here. Um, and that's his primary work he's doing now personally in his walk with the Lord. Um, but are we even aware of that? Are we fish swimming in the sea that have no understanding of the water that contains us that we're in or the air that we're breathing? Let me share a few counterfeit perspectives that exist that we must be mindful of and careful about. One is I give missional living the spare time when I can find it in my schedule. If I've got some spare time and there's a missional living opportunity or an opportunity for me to reach out, hey, I'll give it a shot. Another counterfeit perspective is I need to withdraw from the world and so that I'm not stained by the world because that would be dangerous, you know, if I got too close. Another counterfeit perspective, I can faithfully proclaim the gospel by simply living a good life and not boldly sharing the hope that I have in Jesus. Or the inverse of that, I can faithfully proclaim the gospel by boldly sharing the hope I have in Jesus, but not thinking that it matters how I live personally and privately. So my question for us is, how is your perspective on the importance of living on mission and connecting with those that who need to hear the gospel? Like posture, our perspective must be repeatedly practiced to become our nature. So let me give you some suggestions how we can practice the perspective. Uh, one, prayerfully repenting and asking God uh, for a growing love for the things that God loves. Rather than feeling guilty, rather than feeling shame, rather than feeling like, oh, I guess I ought to do something, why not instead do what the gospel invites you to do and go, God knows it, just confess it. Just turn from it, just ask for his power to live differently. Ask God to give you a love for that neighbor that you could care less about. Not to mention the ones that you really don't like. Ask him to give you a love for them. Um, for the family member that you tolerate over the holidays. For the classmates that you, last table you wanna sit at at lunch is their table. Whatever the case might be, ask God, Confess, 
acknowledge your heart before him, which he already knows, and ask for his grace and mercy to change you. That's what his Holy Spirit was left and sent, left behind and sent to do for us. Let's do that kind of work. I remember you were at our missions conference a few months ago um, during the Kaleidoscope talk. We had one of our missionaries, Jonathan Hastings. Uh, we simply were asking, how did he start living on mission way before he got to the mission field? And he gave the most, one of the most simple, most profound answers. He said this. He said, I began by simply choosing to say yes to outreach and mission opportunities that I heard about at my church. His big, bold step of faith, just started saying yes instead of like, well, I'm not sure I got time for that. Well, I'm not even sure what that is. That would be kind of awkward. I'd be uncomfortable. He just started the simple practice, not saying yes to everyone, but just starting to say yes to some. And God worked and God changed his heart. Um, and they're doing amazing work. Um, if you uh, need to hear more about his ministry, I'd be glad to tell you there with that. Um, our starting point process. We started offering starting point classes just to help you start. If you're in a journey group this coming fall, um, that's going to be part of the curriculum for the fall is helping you learn how we can take steps to start. Um, but don't wait till the fall. We'd love to talk to you or anybody on my team. Um, we'd love to help come alongside and give you some ideas. Um, resources on our webpage are engaging the world. Um, our opportunities, the newsletter will be filled with some of those opportunities. We can start taking that perspective start moving, to starting to say maybe yes to a few things, a few opportunities. Well, as we feed our posture, as we feed our perspective, it will fuel us for the process. Number three is process. Simply put, here's the process. Do what Jesus did, the way Jesus did it. Do what Jesus did, the way Jesus did it. If you think you can improve on that, please don't waste the time. There's been lots of people thinking they could improve on that. Um, and by the way, our flesh is glad to want to lead us in improving on that, but it doesn't work. If it did work, Jesus would have offered multiple ways. But he said, follow me. He said, be imitators of me. He said, let my Holy Spirit fill and empower you to do the work that I began. So what did he, he do? Jesus did three things. If I were to boil it down in three things, he, be, he came into our world he brought mercy and grace to our brokenness, and then he invited us to trust him by following him. So let me just talk about each of those briefly and apply it to us. First, we have to enter into the world with the aroma of Christ. We're not coming on our terms. We're not coming presenting us. We're not selling us. We're not selling Christianity. We are coming sharing the good news and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. That's the ministry of the church. Look at 2 Corinthians 2. Says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. So my question is, what aroma are you giving off? You realize you're giving off one, right? If we had a anonymous survey of one of your coworkers and asked them, what do you sense, what do you pick, what do you sniff out of so-and-so's life, your life, they would have an answer if they felt safe enough to give an answer. The question is simply, what is that aroma? What is the aroma for your extended family members that you try to tolerate who don't know Christ? What is the aroma you're giving off if kids and your classmates to your teachers? your coaches? What is the aroma you're giving off to your neighbors? Because there truly is one. What is the aroma at sporting events that you give off? What is the aroma 
as you're standing in the grocery store line to check out? What is the aroma as you're stuck in traffic? We are giving off an aroma all the time. It's simply a question whether or not it's one of Christ or not. And let me, ask, let me challenge you with this. Whenever our attitude or actions seem inconsistent with the love and the life of Jesus, we should pause and be curious and ask ourselves why. Now, what I do is I defend, excuse, um, and try to distract myself from that. So again, this sermon is mainly for me, partially for you maybe. So I'm asking you to do what I'm asking myself. Whenever an attitude or action seems inconsistent with the love and life of Christ, to pause and be curious and ask why. What is blocking me from having the posture of humility, gratitude, joy, and rest? What is blocking me from living on mission and connecting with those who need the gospel? What well am I drinking from at this moment that isn't the living water that Jesus is and provides? These will give us insights about where repentance and faith can begin and where God's inviting us to start. We also not only need to be aware of that, we need to know and we need to go where people are. We need to engage people where they're at. We need to respond to the needs. If you hear of a need at your place of work or in your neighborhood, let me just challenge you to do something I'm trying to start doing. Assume that you are the only Christian that's hearing that. And you're the only person on the front lines that God has in position that's ready to respond to come alongside, to put a caring arm around somebody, to ask somebody, hey, how can I pray for you? To reach out in hospitality. You are the frontline person in that moment. I had a friend of mine, a, a mentor, and also another PCA pastor from Alabama, a guy named Burt Boykin, um, who surprised me several years ago. He left traditional pastor pulpit ministry and working in the local church um, to go off and to work primarily doing evangelism. And I asked him, I said, why would you do that, Bert? Um, I've, I've known him for 40 plus years. Uh, why would you kind of leave that behind to do this where he is spending most of his time in local hangout places, bars, restaurants, um, parks, wherever he can find people in, in his community that he lives with. And he builds relationships and he talks to them. And here's what his answer was. He's, at, he's responding as a pastor, but please hear it for us as believers. He says, he says this, quote, I suppose every pastor has some sort of desire to do evangelism. I would even contend that it's at the heart of why we, each of us, went into the ministry in the first place. We want to reach people with the gospel. We want to see people converted. We want to grow the church with converts rather than transfers. And we all start out thinking that's what we're going to do. But before long, we get caught up in the bubble of the church and don't actually have time or space to do what we felt called to do in the first place. The demands of the church are huge. The administrative needs are never ending. The existing Christians in our group have an abundance of needs and we must shepherd them. And to be honest, they are the ones who pay our salary. So actually, intentional, strategic, evangelistic activity with the unchurched typically, typically gets pushed to the side. Of course, we're doing stuff with our kids and meeting people at the ballpark, school, neighborhood, etc. And while that's incredibly valuable and really does count, our focus is more on our kids than strategic evangelism. What evangelism does happen is sort of by the way, rather than intentional. But that desire deep within to do evangelism still nags at us, and we feel guilty, frustrated, and anxious about it all. So we grab at new strategies, programs, materials, etc., in an attempt to do evangelism. Give them a shot, teach them to our people, and still don't do evangelism. 
So we look for the next newest plan, the one guaranteed to propel all of us in the church toward active evangelism. Only this new approach fails too, and we go back to feeling defeated, similar to the treadmill lifestyle of works righteousness. Wow, reading those words even again continue to convict me about what it can often look like and what I often think the enemy is quite content with the church doing, a flurry of activity and missing the primary reason why we still are left here on earth to continue living on mission that Jesus began. Well, not only do we have to come and enter the world with the aroma of Christ, we also have to bring mercy and grace into the brokenness we find, because that's what Jesus did, bringing mercy and grace to the brokenness that we find, because we will find brokenness. Well, let me tell you where that starts, not where you think. It doesn't start with their brokenness. It starts with yours. It starts with mine. Being vulnerable, displaying our own brokenness from our own story where Jesus is clearly the hero. Back when we used to live in Orlando, we had abortion clinics nearby that we would sometimes go and pray or um, be there at to try to counsel. I always went enough times to notice that there were some that had a much more profound impact than others. Um, there were people from all over Christian groups, different things, you know, you couldn't control what other, how other people were handling that interaction there. But I noticed some were uh, almost angry, holding signs, you know, um, yelling things. And then there were some that had the posture of, hey, I've been in that building before. And I just want to tell you that I did not find rest and hope that I was hoping to find. And I'd love to share my story with you. The people leading that way had a very different response from the people going in there. It's profound. What were they doing? What were they doing that was so scientifically powerful? They were being vulnerable. They were being honest. They were letting their own brokenness and vulnerability open a door for somebody else to share theirs and to walk in. We have to take the time to learn, by the way, their story before we assume we understand their story. Not only begin with our vulnerability, but we also have to learn their story. We have to connect with them. I like what Brene Brown says. She says, connection is the energy that is created between people when they feel seen, when they feel heard, and when they feel valued. I wonder if some of our attempts as a church in reaching the lost, the unchurched people, if they felt more that we were seeing them, that we were hearing them, that we were valuing them, if their response to us and the gospel might be different sometimes. I think one of the most powerful things we can do in this process is asking questions. Do you realize that Jesus asked 307 questions in the Gospels that we have recorded? I'm sure there were more. And listen to some, some of the questions that Jesus asked, which remember, he's omniscient. He already knows the truth. He already knows the answers, but he's still asking. He's still inviting people. Now we don't know. We need to learn the truth. But listen to the kinds of questions. Jesus would say, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Do you see that woman over there? What is your name? What do you want me to do for you? How long has that been going on? Do you want to get well? Who do you say that I am? Do you love me more than these? Some of the questions that Jesus asked, there's a whole theology there in the depth of that. But what any good counselor will tell you is what he was doing. He was connecting with people. He was inviting them to share their story with him, even though he already knew it. 
but they needed to know that he knew it. Friends, the world needs to know that from us too. We also thirdly need to invite others to join us in trusting and following Jesus. That's what Jesus did. That's what the plan was, was to follow him, not to make them card-carrying Christians, members of Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church, but to make them, help them become followers of Jesus and join us in that journey. We aren't there getting them to sign up. We're getting them and inviting them to join us on a daily intimate journey of following Jesus. We're fellow pilgrims alongside with them. And doesn't that make a huge difference? I mean, when you're in another country, like I get a chance to off and on, um, would you rather have your GPS on your phone guiding you? Would you rather have somebody on a telephone call telling you like, hey, when you see this big building, turn right. Or would you rather have a person right beside you that's like, hey, I know where we're going, just follow me. Let's talk as we're going. World of difference, right? We're invited to do that. Another thing that Bert said in his email back to me, my friend, that I thought was great, is that when he was talking about doing evangelism, he says, we often think that, you know, it's kind of like in a swimming analogy, is that uh, people are looking for a a proficient Olympic swimmer type evangelist that knows what they're doing, has all the answers. And he says, in his experience, which now doing this for five or six years, hanging out in pubs, talking to people, he says, it's the dog paddling type evangelist that connects most, that barely knows what they're doing, doesn't have all the answers, but has come and sat beside them and is talking and asking questions and listening and caring. I don't know about you, I'm a terrible swimmer. I'm not bad at dog paddling though. I can stay afloat for a little bit of time. We bring people like this alongside us. We bring them into the local church. We, do, we journey and do life with them. We follow Jesus together. That's biblical community. That's what God's called us to do. And Jesus has told us that when we are the salt, when we are the light, like Jesus was, <clears throat> what did Jesus say would happen? That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus is up to. That's what he's still up to through his church. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would continue that work in me that you continue that work in Mitchell Road and in your church here in South Carolina, around the world, that we would more and more reflect the image of your son. God, that we would have a posture and a perspective and a process that is simply that of Christ, that you'd be glorified, that you would bring all your lost sheep to yourself, that you would bring and establish your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we transition to the Lord's table here in just a moment,